Welcome back to another Ag Watchers. This one is a recorded one. Uh, we've had a few live uh, iterations with the spaces thing, but we've decided to go back and have a special guest on. Um, old old school. Before yep, we go old school. It. Back again. And we've actually got a guest that we've had on previously. Uh, would have been, gosh, it almost might have been, was it last year or the year before? It's been a while. She, uh, she's, she's also got her own theme music as well. <laughs> she has, really? Well, sorry, Miss Jackson. Jackson, life is for real. I can't remember the rest of the words no. for it. Do, 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 do. We got, we got <laughs> Liz Jackson. G'day, fellas. G'day from uh, Curtin Uni uh, and uh, expert in supply chains. And given, Andrew, that we've been seeing quite a few disruptions to the supply chain, not just this year, but even more recently, uh, both in the West and in South Australia and, and now in the East Coast, with this flooding and the impact of processes that that's happening. We thought we'd get Liz on to have a bit of a chat about what's going on. Um, that that peculiar sound of the slurping is Andrew um, very unprofessionally having a drink of... Um, Barley of water. <laughs> Liz, welcome back to the to Watch This uh, podcast. Absolute pleasure or to, to, to chat to you two at any time. I'm your number one fan. You say, you say that you say that now, but just wait for forty five minutes time. So well, we, uh, but, but well, we, we don't we don't we don't let you off because you know, just because you've been on before doesn't mean you get off with the uh, the sixth sense. Cool. So, so Matt, you can explain it for the for the listeners who might be listening to this podcast for the first time. Mm. And so we're gonna probe you quickly with a a word, and you've got to give us back. Uh, well, there'll be six of them in total, thus the name the six six cents. Yeah, we're, we're, so, we're, we're thought leaders when it comes to marketing and technology and innovation. Yeah, although, although we can't, we sometimes get tongue tied on it, so we probably could have thought of a better phrase. But anyway, uh, we're gonna the shoot fourth sense, we could do the fourth well, sense. Well, there's then, only four of them, exactly, and it would be quicker as well. All mm. the one sense. <laughs> or we could do we could do half of one and call it fifty cents. Too shy. Do me. All right, right. Getting, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a Hoiberg tangent even before we started. Um, <laughs> so we'll fire a word at you, and you just got to spit back out either a word or a phrase, very brief, first thing that comes to mind. Andrew, you want to kick it off? Putin. Vladimir. Supply chains. Resilience. Scotland. The brave. Black pudding. Disgusting. Crocs. Disgusting. <laughs> and are they and tinea. <laughs> well, that's a good response. And we'll finish off with... I had something uh, that I was thinking of. Oh, um, processes, meat processes. The hidden middle. Very good. All right. So, um, so we'll jump straight into it, I think, Andrew. And uh, we'll. Um, You're kind of looking at me blankly there. Was I supposed to say something? Well, well usually you do. So, yeah, I'll just let <laughs> you speak. Uh, we'll start with we'll start with yeah, I'm going to say we'll start with supply chains. Um, like I said in the intro, there, Liz, we've had a you know, very strange kind of a uh, couple of years, I guess, with COVID. But um, most recently, we've had um, some issues with regards to I guess climate inspired um, problems to the supply chain with 
uh, initially the floods in, in South Australia. Now, I noted that, that even though it's heavily impacting South Australia and the Sturt Highway, uh, it also had some spin spillover effects to WA. Can you give us a rundown? Because you're obviously WA-based. What was happening there in WA based on the, uh, you know, the supply chain disruptions to South Australia? Yeah, so the situation um, became very interesting because it, it exposed Western Australia's transport vulnerabilities. Um, it, it's perfectly well known that, that Western Australia, um, in, in terms of logistics hubs, is very, very, very vulnerable. We've really only got one container port. We've actually got three, but one that's at scale. Um, we've only got one railway into the state. Um, we've only got, um, we've got a few international airports, but with, um, you know, uh, so many fleets being grounded, air transport is pretty much null and void. Um, and really, in terms of getting freight into this state, um, there's only one route. There's only one, there's only one road. So oh, there's, two. There are, there's, there's two. There's two. There's one up there's, north. There's one up north, one down south. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we've got two, but in terms of the one that that got that connects the state where all the stuff comes into, um, the, the the one up north that's good for your um, holidays and that sort of thing, and 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 transferring goods across the state on the north. Um, but in terms of in terms of getting goods um, into Western Australia from where, um, where where they land, we are in Western Australia. We are so 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 vulnerable, and that's and it's one thing to know this. But it's another thing to actually have that vulnerability tested, which is what happened when the railway line um, washed away in South Australia. And it, it continues, even though it's been fixed for a good week or so now, our supermarket shelves are still extremely empty. And we're probably not going to expect them to be back to normal until maybe Easter or even after Easter. So is this um is this when you say that is this kind of your fresh products your, your your meat and veg and all that or is it is it across the board is it you know your your dry kind of goods and and you know, every every kind of shelf is is looking thin. So in Western Australia, we're we're really blessed to have um, a very active um, and healthy fresh fruit, veg, and meat um, supply chain and milk um, supply chain. So our the provision of fresh fruit and veg um, hasn't really been too badly affected um, by what happened with the railway. It was really more um, the the non-perishable consumer goods like your cleaning products um, and, um, and and the longer the longer shelf life products like pasta, rice, um, long life milk, those sorts of products. So so it's that obviously that is at a time when so you've got the rail down. But you've also got the roads were pretty limited in terms of not just obviously there's a big distance across the Nullarbor, but there was a lot more restrictions. You know, in, into WA it was pretty hard to get into WA just all the testing and whatnot because you've turned turned Western Australia into Fortress WA for the last two years. I didn't. Well, just let me be clear that I didn't do that. Your it people, the, it, your yes. people, your people. <laughs> wasn't me. In, your people turned your, into a fortress. Your, your countrymen. Your countrymen. It wasn't me. <laughs> the West Australians or Westrelians. Uh, so that was that would have exacerbated the problem as well because trucking has become such an issue that it's harder and harder to get trucks across the Nullarbor. So, so do you think this has come at a time when 
it would have been easier if trucks were able to move without vaccines and well not vaccines but without the testing requirements and the isolation requirements like wa seems to have become almost like a too hard state to work in oh yeah absolutely it has uh, which is such a shame um because it's a great place and we've got a lot to offer the world and this and the rest of australia um but what you're saying andrew is 100 percent correct um we have had terrible, terrible, ter terrible troubles with um, road transport and the road transport network. Um, essentially, not not only from a policy point of view, um, and 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 it just being difficult, but also from um, a people point of view. I've heard terrible, terrible, terrible stories of um, from the road transporters about their dreadful treatment of um, transcontinental truck drivers, you know, not being served at roadhouses, not being able to, not, not being allowed to go in and have a, a shower at roadhouses. It's just gross. Um, so um, yeah, no, there's been there's there's been a lot of really distasteful behaviour going on um, um, to the to the road transporters. Um, in terms of in terms of the policy of what should and what shouldn't what should and what shouldn't happen, um, we're we're really facing an incredibly difficult balance to maintain here. Um, we've got to keep our um, our economy going and the and the flows of products um, going through the supply chains, but we've also got to be very very mindful of um, the health and welfare of people who are working in the supply chain um, and whether uh, and, and and whether you. You don't if you if you happen to be the type of person who doesn't care about that. Well, the the, the issue is that um, you know if you, if you if you don't care if you don't care about people's health and welfare, the knock on effect is that if they get sick, they can't do their job, so you can't get your stuff. Um, so it's it's a it really is um, a very difficult balancing act to to get right. How, how many times has it been an issue where the rail line in W in South Australia has closed down and it's caused? this sort of an issue i'm pretty sure it's happened before i remember there was a container train maybe in like 2014 got rolled over does it does it happen often no not to my knowledge um i i i wasn't aware of that situation they there were um you know people were saying things like this is once in a generation this happens it's once in a hundred years it's once in 200 years all those expressions indicate that it happens very, very, very rarely. Um, it's one thing for um, a derailment to happen or an accident to happen, um, but for because that can be um, cleaned up pretty quickly, and you know it can um, it can be moved off the line. But in terms of the the tracks being washed away, that's damage to it. That's big damage to big infrastructure. And the other thing is, it's in the middle of nowhere. So all the heavy machinery that needed to be, um, um, you know, hauled in to, to, to fix it, all the blue metal that had to come in, all the staff who had to come in, they had to come from hundreds of k's away. Um, so it was it was tough. And now, Liz, you, you mentioned a bit about, um, you know, workforce, I guess, um, you know, issues, but one of the things that's just about to uh, occur, we're on the cusp of West Australia um, opening up again, uh, as of I think tomorrow, I think it is. So yeah. Um, and and I noted that um, you know as long as long as you've got about six thousand dollars for a flight, <laughs> it's not cheap, is it? Um, but I noted that uh, you know we had and and you mentioned as well, I guess the health and safety of the workforce too, just before and how important that is to the supply chain in 
the southeastern states when when Omicron kind of started spreading, we got our processing sector, you know, quite significantly hit for a, in that early part of January, and we had you know fairly um, significant reductions in um, in throughput for the first few weeks into January in terms of what was you know comparing to normal. Uh, in, in some instances, you know, there was reports of of processing in the southeastern states uh, being. 30 to 50 percent down on their workforce you know as in their standing workforce not just you know not being able to have the additional people they like to have in that are on um on, on kind of visa type processes um i did know at that time though wa you know you guys were still managing to to hang in there and pretty much process the same as what you were processing previously but you know are you finding that with that whole lockdown phase, were there other sectors that were really struggling, you know, that were obviously struggling for, for work and staff, um, you know, when you were going through that stage? And, what, and what's the feeling now that you're about to open? Is it, you know, is, it feeling, is it a general feeling of goodwill or is there a bit of apprehension that you're coming back into Australia? Yeah, so in answer to the first part of the question, um, I hate to be smug, but my opinion of what happened, my reflection of what happened was that we just comparatively speaking we just kept going business as usual um it just you know uh, we just kept ticking over um and which was which was great and it was really painful to see the pain that the people in the eastern states were going through um and you know a lot of us were sitting back watching and observing to see what we could learn um from what what you were going through because we knew that it was going to happen to us eventually um the borders reopening um, tomorrow, so the third of March, um, into Western Australia. I'd say there are the camp is divided. Um, there are people who are very much looking forward to um, uh, the opportunity to get out and to get in, um, but there is there is a there is a lot that's going to go wrong. And we're, I and I believe, from a supply chain point of view, this is Western Australia is going to bear the brunt of the, the situation now. Um, and it's not only, and I think a lot of what people forget is that it's not only the people who have COVID, but it's the close contacts um, of people who are perfectly healthy, but they're not allowed to go to work. And despite all the um, automation and the artificial intelligence that's going on in so many supply chains these days, we are still desperately reliant on people um, to to get the work done, and meat processing plants are no exception. What about like a lot of labour in Western Australia? <clears throat> Western Australia, like I obviously lived in Western Australia for five years. You can, tell, things, by the, you can tell by the accent, mate. Uh, g'day, yeah, mate. G'day, g'day. I'll have a swan lager, thanks. Now, now, give, give, give us a running bird, dear. Um, <laughs> but. One of the things that always, away, man. But one of the things that I always used to find was that the it was quite a transient place. Like Perth itself is quite transient. Like you met a lot of people who lived there but weren't necessarily going to live there forever. Yep. And a lot of people who had arrived, they might be here for two years, might be here for three years. They might move back to you know somewhere else in the world, or they might move to the East Coast or whatnot. So it was a lot of that sort of temporary workers even even the sort of professional sort of uh, areas there's a lot of temporaries it wasn't just backpackers but I, I just wonder has australia sort of in the long west australia sorry in the long term maybe shot itself in the foot a bit by being so restrictive by being by being fortress wa there's maybe an element of people saying 
Rick, I might not take that. You know, there was a view that, you know, taking sort of two years in, in Western Australia, that would be, that'd be awesome fun. I can go to beach, I can go to Frio and do whatever else. Uh, but they might not be thinking that it's such a holiday anymore if they're going to get stuck there for, for, for two years and not be able to see family and whatnot. Same, same with yeah, backpackers. Possibly. Same with backpackers. A backpacker is going to be thinking, I might go to the East Coast in Kate instead because it might be a bit less restrictive than than WA. Oh yeah. Now the way the way that our government has handled the situation, there is absolutely no no shadow of a doubt that Western Australia um, has gone down the list on of of people's um, preferred destinations. Um, also, don't forget what we didn't don't have going for us is being the most isolated capital city in the world so um you know if you were going to come here you it's because you really really wanted to come here um it's not it certainly wasn't for a convenience um but um yeah it's we we've seen even you know organizations as big as west farmers shipping their senior staff um over to the eastern states um i don't know whether that was temporary or permanent but um it's a big thing um, you know, Western Australia has got to work hard to attract people over here. Um, and, like it's, a, and it's a beautiful place. Like WA, Matt's only been once or twice, I think. Twice. Well, and like, but it is a beautiful, it's a fantastic place. But it is this sort of thing. If if you're from somewhere else, you don't necessarily want to be stuck there for two years without being able to exit. Like I've got friends who are in. I got a friend who's got a six-month-old, and she's not seen her family you know for for two and a half years coming on three years whereas previously it was every six months they'd see each other Mm. so it does have that effect of you know being you know fortress wa might not be quite the best long-term solution yeah absolutely and i noticed um a recent very very interesting article from thomas elder markets about um the the influence of backpack you know what the the impact of backpackers um and Never, never 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 heard of them Oh really? You really should it. subscribe. They are fantastic. I had the terrible I, sense of humour. I had the analysts with that, a bunch of a bunch of dicks. So I'm oh, really? trying to avoid their stuff. They've they've not got good judgment, is what I've heard. So oh, see, I've heard that about <laughs> one of their competitors. <laughs> oh anyway. But no, like the backpacker one is interesting. We spoke about it uh, we spoke about that a while back. Do we speak about it in a podcast? I can't remember. I can't remember if we did. I think because the last few podcasts I spoke done, about it, I spoke on a radio interview, uh, um, sort of but it's it's an interesting one because when you look at the data, um, there's there's two kinds of backpackers in the main yeah? There's people who come here for the first visa, and that's fantastic. But then there's another percentage of them that are actually second year visas, so people staying for that second year. But last year there was no first year visas. So that means there's no second year visas this year. So that's about 30,000 second year visas no longer there. But I've got this view that a second year visa holder is worth more than a first year visa holder. Worth more in terms of what? Productivity? Productivity in terms of like, if, you, if you're if you a first year visa holder, you have been, you've been bush, so to speak, yeah? You, you've been up to, you've been to Kulin or, or wherever it is you've been. You've spent a bit of time in rural areas. So there's no real shocks there. You're also used to the heat. So if you've came from Norway or Scotland, you know, first year, half that first year is just going to be sweating, drying your brow. And and the second year should be adjusted to it. 
and you might have also spent some time fruit picking or you might have spent some time on the farm so you've actually got some experience so there's probably a it should be a premium on second year visas holders this should be the cream of the crop but there's none of them left and so so we're relying on some of those second years becoming third year visas which very small number actually stay for three years but it's also getting those first year visas in because I don't, I don't think we're. I think we're going to struggle to get first year visas this year. We've only, we've only done something like seventeen thousand visas for the first six months of the financial year, whereas normally we'll do two hundred thousand visas for the year. Yeah, they're not swarming. They're not swarming. So, so, to come here. So, so it's going to like that backpacker problem this year is going to be worse potentially than last year. Yeah. And the year before, because we've got nobody hanging around. Mm. And and I think like, we did talk about it in the podcast. We talked about it with uh, Cook. I did, mm-hmm. I, I, with Stephen Kukoulos. Oh, yeah, we did too. Yes, yeah. Oh, correct. Well, yeah, we did. For anyone who's listened to the podcast, uh, you could have just skipped that last 30 seconds because we... Uh, everyone about... loves a bit of revision. Or repetition, you know, because we, we're one-trick ponies. We just talk about the same thing over and over again. Oh, right. I've got uh, a couple so... of examples of that. <laughs> so, anyway, so, moving on. Moving on. So, so supply chains. It's a really interesting point of view on, on supply chains. You, you've got you've got interesting views on supply chains. They probably are different to farmers' views. Okay. Like a lot of farmers are focused on selling it to the next end piece, next person. But but you think there should be better relationships between supply chain partners and farmers? Why? Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Uh, sorry, there was a bit of a, um, a blip in the Wi-Fi. Um, yeah, um, absolutely. And um, supply chain theory over a long, long, long period of time has has shown us that. I can also hear the birds, birds as well. Is that, is that, was that birds in the I couldn't think what that was in the background. I'm so that... sorry. Yeah, we've got a crow problem um, around here. Sorry. Um <laughs> You need a shotgun solution then. I did think it, I, might, I thought it might have been Andrew's partner just calling out to him. <laughs> now, now, sure. you two. We're lucky, we're lucky that she doesn't listen to it. You're lucky that she's never listened to a single episode and she says it's cringeworthy that we even do a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right. Back in the room, you two. Back in the room. Because, yeah. Right, supply chain, supply chain theory, yes. So we've known for a long, 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 long time that um, it's but should, actually... But shouldn't, shouldn't, um, shouldn't we be oppositional with the supply chain? Shouldn't we be thinking, they're trying to screw us over, let's screw them over and, and screw them for every penny? Isn't that what we should be doing? Yeah, you could you, you could think like that, but it's it's pretty counterproductive um, and it's pretty, um, it's pretty destructive. Um, in terms of, um, I am, I am, Sco- the- I am Scottish, but known for our diplomacy and whatnot. Um, so if you, the the people who are really kicking goals, the farmers who are really kicking goals, um, particularly at, um, during you know difficult times, um, you know, all based on all sorts of disruptions, whether that be relationships with China, whether it be railways washed away, whether it be droughts, floods, whatever. Um, and the grower groups that I'm seeing um, that are putting a lot of effort into uh, re-engineering their supply chains to basically shift their focus from the consumer 
to a focus on their customer. So I, I see a lot of farmers um, spending a lot of um, intellectual energy thinking about what the consumer wants. Um, and I, and this is a, to me, this is a real hallmark of how farmers think in Australia. We've got to think about the consumer. We've got to think about the consumer. What is the so consumer when, when, you, when, you, when you say consumer, like when I talk about consumer, I might be talking about the flour mill, but you're talking about the... The retail yeah, consumer. Hamish, yeah, the people, Ham, Ham, Hamish has gone out to buy a loaf of bread. Yes, yes, yeah. Um, yeah, so the person who drinks the milk out of the bottle, the person who eats the bread, the person who... You should, um, you should, ne you should never drink milk out of a bottle, Liz, because it can cause bacterial infections. Okay. So you always the milk pours out of it into bottle, a glass. Pours it into a glass and very, with very good manners, drinks the milk out of the glass because they're concerned about um, biosecurity and mm -hmm. the health and well-being of the of people the, of, of the rest of the family sharing a milk bottle with. Uh, <clears throat> so it's us, the people who go to the supermarket. We are the consumer. All the people, all the all the players in the middle of the supply chain, they are the customers. So if and and I worry that farmers, that so many farmers in this country, really. Have, have been brainwashed for want of a better expression to think about what the consumer wants. Um, if you're looking at if you're looking at a healthy supply chain, what you should be think what you should be looking at and considering is the next step in the supply chain. Who is your customer, and what does your customer want from you? And fulfilling the uh, fulfilling the fulfilling the aims and objectives and needs of that customer. That's because yeah. To, I'm sorry to be sexist, but Customer is king or queen or, or, or whatever queen. you want them to be. But or, they, or they. Yeah, or queen. Customer, customer, yeah, is they. Um, so and once and once you've got that sorted out, then you then then anybody, if, if you go by that principle, then you can actually design businesses to match what that customer wants and leave that customer to do what they do best, which is add value. So so and and, and create Create pro create new products and services around that value added product. See, when I was a wee lad, back in the day, back in not long ago, you know, yeah. back in the back in the moors of Scotland, one of the uh, one of the things that we were sort of not drummed into us, it, it was sort of taught uh, two up, two down. It, not necessarily to be solving everything, but to understand two chains down and two up the chain. Uh, so, so basically, it was you should understand logistics, and you should understand the customer. You should understand logistics from the farm to you. Uh, we were in a trading company, and so it was kind of. I always find it interesting as long as you understand those two parts of the chain, or the four parts of the chain, at least a basic level of it, you, you'd be pretty, pretty good. You know, you, you sort of learn a bit about it. So, I guess, I guess the other thing I would say as well is that agricultural supply chains are very different. Like, a, like, if you think about bread, yeah, like the loaf of bread, the supply chain for that is quite long, really. You've got a grower, you've got a, and I like to consider the actual transport companies as part of that supply chain as well, whether, whether that's right or wrong. So you've got the yeah, grower. Well, actually, you've got a fertilizer company. You've got a chemical company. You've got a... Uh, an analyst to help you know what to do with the markets. Uh, then you've got 
well, actually, we're across this file. Analysts are across the whole supply chain anyway. But you've got the farmer, and then you've got the transport company, and then you've got the buyer, and then you've got a, a flour mill. Then you've got a distribution to the bakery. Then you've got a distribution from the bakery out to the stores. But then alongside that, you've got actually a marketing supply chain as well. You've got people marketing, you know, tip-top bread. You've got, you know, this footballer eats tip-top bread every day, and that's why he's, you know, shooting you know, five point shooting hoops every day in the AFL or whatever, you know, and he's getting home runs when he's playing, he's, he's getting home runs when he plays cricket and whatnot. So, so, but, but it's, but it's that, but that is a long supply chain bread. Yeah. And the same with beer, beer's got a massive supply chain because of the number of ingredients. And, and we're only talking about one, like when we talk about beer in relation to agriculture, we're probably only talking about the barley supply chain. There's a yeast supply chain. There's a hop supply chain. There's a aluminium can. Heineken, Heineken have said that they're going to, have to increase the cost of beer because uh, the cost of aluminium has gone up too high. And so, so it's a whole supply. Oh, chain. aluminium. Well, uh, aluminium. Yeah, we, we had a we had a podcast we have, recently. We have, we have Americans on sometimes, so we've got to we've got to do a bit for for them. Even though they can't speak English, can't they um, just can't but, they just switch to a glass uh, stubby and keep the costs the same? But anyway, ah, and then you get a nice closed loop supply chain with returning your stubbies. Happy sustainable, days. always awesome. thinking of the sustainable angle, Liz. Do you know what that's called? It's a gingy. It's, it's a gingy bottle. A who? Well, you get your, you get your glass Sounds of iron. You, you get your glass of iron brew in Scotland. It used to cost you seventy pence. And you returned the bottle, and you got twenty pence back. And Ooh. so, so when I was a young lad, you used to go around building sites and to people's house and knock on the door and ask if you can get the gingy bottles, and, you, nice. and then you return them. Nice. So I was brought up in the wrong side of the wrong side of town. I wasn't. Anyway, uh, but anyway, going back to the point, I don't like to go on chant tangents because I don't like uh, getting complaints about the podcast. So, so bread and beer, two long supply chains, a lot of moving parts. Meat. Meat's different, though. Meat's got a relatively small supply chain. You have a farmer. Forget about the transport just now. You've got a farmer. It goes to an abattoir. The steak gets cut off the hind of it. It then gets put in a vacuum pack. It then goes straight to Woolworths or Coles or one of those upmarket butchers that Matt's wife goes to. And... Um, and then the person goes in to buy it, and then they cook it, and then that's it. There's only a couple of links in the meat supply chain compared to bread, which has got a huge number. So the actual product, like a grain farmer, unless he's selling it into the feed industry, does not sell wheat to anyone. Nobody consumes wheat other than chickens, pigs, and cows. But you consume a steak directly. It's... Basically, and if and if you like Matt Real and I, food. well, if you like Matt and I, you have a bit of steak tartare. You're not even cooking it, so we we sort of have this really small supply chain. So so in that supply chain, like the meat supply chain, is it more appropriate to be thinking more about what the customer wants? But in conjunction with the processor, because there's only really when you say customer, do you mean consumer or Liz? Uh, yeah, technology? I think you mean consumer there. No, I do. I do. I mean both. I mean, okay. you've, you've got an, like Jimmy the farmer, yeah, is selling to Hamish the processor, who's selling to Angus 
the customer. It's, very, it's a very Anglo-Saxon heavy um, supply chain here, Andrew. Yeah, I think someone... Not very inclusive, not very inclusive. Yeah. What's that? Olivia. Okay. I'm just trying to think of some female Scottish names. Uh, so Heather. 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 So Heather is selling to Mary, who's selling to Agnes, right? That's that's still not inclusive now because you've just got only Scottish females. I didn't. You can you can have a female name and rep, represent another. They might gender. be trans, Matt. Exactly. Okay, that's true. That's get true. On, that's get, true. Get, get, get with the 21st century, you oaf. Um, anyway, but the, the, the thing with it is, yeah, you've got this supply chain where you've got this, this say for argument, you're a farmer, you sell it to a processor, and then the processor sells it to the supermarket, who's going to consumer. Small supply chain. In that circumstance, is it more appropriate for the farmer to be talking to their customer, which is a processor, about the consumer to make sure they're meeting the right fat quantities or flavor profiles or whatever it else because that could like in pigs that can make a big difference you can you can you can see big changes quite quickly through the supply chain so so whereas with bread i agree we not but maybe in the meat industry they should be thinking about the consumer slightly more because there is a direct linkage with it mm-hmm. and this is what what i'm saying is this is this is how the best producers are structuring their supply chains. So the ones, so there are essentially two avenues to pursue in in um, in meat production. And let's let's just say um, um, let's just let's just go generic red meat. I don't worry about poultry and pigs and that sort of thing. Um, but what what a what a producer can essentially do is they can um, follow the uh, a regular supply chain. You know, either go um, send livestock to the sale yards, or they can set, um, and and then over the hooks and and that sort of thing, and um, almost take the commodity route. And it's when you take the commodity route that that my my thinking is that you know, that the farmers need to really be thinking about their customer. Because it's the customer, it's the processors who make the decisions about where those bulk quantities of meat products are going to go. And sometimes, yeah, they are shipped out as ribeye steaks, but but quite often there's a lot of value adding that's going on um, in meat processing plants at the moment. I know, for example, Lindley Valley over here, which is a, um, a pig meat producer, they do loads of really interesting value adding um, at the meat processing. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to give a plug for a previous podcast because we know that Packton Park get all its blood for its black pudding from West Australia, and I'm assuming it comes from from Lindley Valley due to the fact quite, that it's the biggest processor. Quite possibly, quite possibly, quite yeah. I wouldn't be at all surprised. Um, but there are actually. Um, there are actually some really innovative, really entrepreneurial farmers who are saying, no, I want to circumvent that commodity system. I don't want my livestock to be put in the bucket, the commodity bucket um, for other people through the supply chain, through that long, well, that, that supply chain to be making decisions about my product. And these are the people who are going straight to, the, to their, let's say, consumer, perhaps the retailer. Um, whether that be um, but it's, um, but that, but that, but that's, restaurant chain, but that's not easy though. No, that that, that, that require. I spoke. I, used, I spoke to a lady a few times at different events. Uh, Robin Verrill 
from South Australia and really, really fascinating lady and doing a lot of direct trade into restaurants and a lot of direct trade into China as well. Uh, fascinating, but it's a completely different skill set. It's a, it's a marketing and supply chain skill set and agriculture is just a bit of it really. But yeah. it's pretty hard to get into. One one of the one of the points you made there is about farmers choosing what the consumer wants. Yeah. So yeah, okay. Good, yeah. Farmers should think about what their what their next down the line should want. Yeah. Their customer. Yep. But is there a case that the farmer should choose what it wants? To, he wants to, or or she wants to do. Oh yeah, and I would say that that's the that's the majority of. Of what happens, and and is um, and is that wrong? I guess. But let's let's say, for instance, so I'll 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 give you a bit more, sort of a bit more flavour to that. Let's say, for instance, there's an old, you know, thing I've heard repeated quite often over the last ten years or something, and that we need to have this type of farming. We need to ensure that there's dairy farms. We need to make sure that there's more wool because if we don't have wool, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but is there a case, like the, what do they call it, the fight for acres? And oh, I'm right. Not, yeah, I've heard that expression. And, I'm, and I'm, I guess I'm, I'm sort of thinking, like farmers are not stupid. If farmers were stupid, they wouldn't be farming. They would be analysts or something, yeah? But when... But that sort of argument about the fight for acres that we've got to encourage people to grow wool. If they wanted to grow wool, they would. Mm-hmm. And look, obviously, the last couple of years we've seen financial incentives to grow wool, but it still doesn't mean they're going to grow wool because the reality is that a they can make good money from sheep meat, Matt. Can they? I'm guessing. Yep, absolutely. Yep. yep. I, I'm, I'm not the sheep guy, so I'm just going to talk around that. They can make good money from sheep. They got less work. Uh, and sheep itself, you, you're, you're, I believe, I believe I'm in royalty here, actually. Sheep producers board member, sheep producers policy member. Jeez. Oh, and I've never been invited to be on any policy groups, just saying, if anyone's listening. Uh, but, but the reality is it almost becomes a bit of a cohesion sort of thing to say, we need to get you to grow more wool because the industry needs more wool. Well, the grower will decide what he wants to do based on economic considerations, social considerations, you know, normative beliefs, etc. And so I guess what we're sort of looking at is, well, why are we trying to convince people to do something that they might not want to do? Like if, if people, uh, what's your thoughts on that? The fight for acres, so to speak. Um, okay, so I don't believe that the fight for acres is a terribly good way of presenting the argument. Um, to me, it's more about um, it's about resource allocation and production economics, um, where we're exactly like you said. It's not a it's not a fight. It's not a fight for acres. First of all, we're talking in hectares these days, and the other thing is that um, that you know that people will, will make up their own decisions based on their the particular set of constraints that they face, but also the objectives of their business. Um, and you know, I, I personally believe in a free market. I don't, I, I don't see the, I, I, I don't agree with um, market interventions by any sort of market intervention for, um, for, for agricultural or any sort of um, commodity production. I, I believe in a free market, um, rightly or wrongly. Um, 
but but not even that sort of education when i say education i mean sort of indoctrination that they should be doing something no absolutely not but the cuz the other thing is what we must never forget about farming is um a couple of a couple of golden rules that um farming uh, farming is a system mm-hmm. sorry no i was going to i was going to interject with some snide comment I, I've, I've got my my rules for farming but I'll, you go with yours first yeah no so so we're talking about so 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 a farm exists in a system um and you know sometimes you have sometimes a farmer will make a decision where they have to forego well they have to forego something in order to benefit in in another way and this is um and and this is for me this is how i view the um the argument um for sheep production in that Sheep production um, in Western Australia, anyway, I should cl- clarify, qualify, um, is not just about making money. People, farmers have sheep in this in this state for reasons other than making money, for weed control, for um, all sorts of <laughs> yeah, biological reasons um, rather than financial reasons. Um, so we mustn't we mustn't forget like a, like that. A, now, like I, a lot of sheep in Western Australia would be a side of a cropping business, not a it's not there's not many sheep orientated businesses in western australia it's mainly cropping really. businesses that have sheep yeah because they because they they because they balance the system mm. um and 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 this is why i think that it's so important to talk about to 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 acknowledge the system um that that farms and 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 groups of farms indeed are um, there was another point that I was going to make, but it is it was so important and it's completely slipped my mind. I'm so sorry. Well, the same question was asked of the uh, Bill Malcolm at a presentation in Hamilton last year. And, and his view was about the fight for acres. It's generally something that is pushed by people who are trying to increase levy money. You know, increase wool or increase sheep or increase dairy, and it's generally something that is pushed. Encouraging people to go down a certain route is generally something that is there for other reasons. Well, they have an agenda. Yeah, it's it's not for. But my golden rule for farming is is you were very eloquently put, uh, Liz, as as always. Mine mine is a bit more simple, uh, as I like to keep things simple. Is do what you know what to do and do it well, or even do what you enjoy doing and do it well. Ah, wonderfully um, um, a, 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 a thought wonderfully underpinned by neoclassic economics. Very nice, Andrew. Do what I, you I do thought, best. I thought, I thought when you started saying neo, you're going to say Neanderthal, but that's uh... no, 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 no. Underpinned by neoclassic economics. Very well done. I think we've lost Matt. He's yeah. just gone. He's gone very still. Yeah. Anyway, he wasn't. He wasn't. He wasn't offering us much in the way of engaging conversation. Well, so. I, to be honest with you, I'm actually really worried that I'm talking about meat issues <clears> with Wheat Watcher and Matt and and um with Wheat Watcher and Meat Watcher is just sitting. I'm I'm just really worried that 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 Wheat that Meat Watcher is just um making notes and is about to spring something really 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 difficult on me no he's back oh, now I, I, I can see oh, him. yeah well i just um for some reason there i think i just dropped off for a second but i've just jumped back on again um well, I, was, I, I, I learned everything i know about meat from that it's a good segue there because I, I had actually been waiting and thinking for an opportunity to come in when um when andrew stopped speaking liz um you mentioned just going back to that 
meet supply chain and some of the things you're talking about in terms of, you know, having to uh, be more aware of the of the consumer, the consumer, right? Um, and I just I was thinking about the works being done in the objective carcass measurements and grading, you know, and obviously that's a lot of work there, which primarily is for the processor to give feedback to the farmer about, you know, what they're doing on farm to try and, you know, work towards a better result in whatever it is they're, they're trying to measure. And also, I guess, to demonstrate, uh, you know, objectively that they can value the carcass where the, where the you know, processor is happy, the farmer's happy. But I wonder too, is there also, is there also, are they also looking all the way through that to look at the other end and say, are they, are they also targeting, certain characteristics in that objective measurement that's going to go down to eating quality for the consumer like they that's also part of the equation too right oh absolutely and i would be so disappointed if this data that are being collected aren't used for that purpose in the future um this data are not only valuable between the processor and the farmer um this these data are incredibly valuable right through the end of the supply chain we may not be there yet um, because of course there are so many um, there are so many difficulties and nuances with um, the ethics of sharing data and who owns the data and all, and all that sort of thing. Um, but in terms of what the data are for, um, this is this is a great use of data that are already being collected and the work that the abattoir the meat processors are doing um, with objective carcass measurement is absolutely fantastic and this is and the farmers who are subscribing to objective carcass measurement because I know this there are some who object to it um, but the farmers who are um, supporting the introduction of objective carcass measurement are the ones who um, have clearly have um, quality in their sites and they clearly have the the idea of of changing their businesses and changing their practices in order to meet what they're what their what their customers want and they are prepared to listen to what their customers want um, and um, and 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 structure their businesses around that. Um, the funny thing is that happens all over the world. For some reason, um, it doesn't happen much in, in agriculture. Um, and I think I know why um, if if I've got time to give my thoughts on why that is. Um, I think it's because um, we Australia has been so incredibly blessed to have the um, to have the marketing systems that have been created um, after the Second World War in terms of the statutory authorities that yeah have been um, deregulated now but we are still very 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 much a commodity based um, a, a commod commodity based systems um, and whereby all of us, just going back to um, Wheat Watchers' analogy there, um, all of us just do what we do best and then the next step in the supply chain looks after everything else. Um, what, what we're seeing in the, um, in the evolution of supply chain management is we're actually, we're actually seeing those, um, those silos being broken down and, you know, much, much, much more emphasis being put on not only what the customer wants but also creating really strong relationships with suppliers to make sure that that, that supply chain is really nicely integrated and there's lots of sharing of information because don't forget that supply chains rely on flows of three three things the products obviously the data like we've been talking about 
and also the flow of finance um, and the flow of money. So, um, yeah, if we can keep those three flows going um, based on the structure of the industry that we've got as it currently stands, which, by the way, has worked beautifully for years and years and years and is, in fact, the envy of the world. Um, so we've got a really good system, um, but it just it just doesn't facilitate a lot of discussion between supply chain members. What, what's, um... So, so here's, here's a contrarian view on that. The word commodity is now considered to be a bad word, yeah? Okay. Yeah, a lot of people say, oh, you don't want to be in the commodity markets. You want to be a niche product. We want to be supplying to the, the top end of town, whatnot. Let's use grain as an example, yeah? Mm-hmm. A lot of grain is a lot of grain in Australia by virtue of the climate is is good high quality stuff you know your H1s your H2s and and whatnot mm-hmm. but a lot of grain is is poorer quality I guess or lower proteins but I guess our customer let's call it the the, the customer not not the trader but the end use for it is in a lot of cases going to be feedlots mm-hmm. whether that customer is domestic feedlot in you know, the Darling Downs, and we might talk about Darling Downs in a second about supply chain issues. And it also might be an Indonesian feedlot or a pig farm in Thailand or wherever you want to think about, yeah? So I guess the question is, do we have to think about, always think about quality as a good thing? Because we don't need high quality H1, H2 protein. No, no. We we can use red wheat varieties that produces higher yields. We we can we can opt for yield over quality, which sometimes you know yield is king, stroke queen. So they and so what I'm sort of think, suggesting is that sometimes commodity markets are the right markets for Australia. We produce ample qualities. Our meat, you know, I'm, I don't want to step on Matt's toes, but a lot of our meat is 90 CL. It's it's burger meat for for Yanks to eat in McDonald's or wherever else. So, so, so there's only actually, quality is only a small segment of a small segment, potentially. And, and I disagree. And, yeah, good. If I may. Um, so the assumption, the assumption that you're making is that quality is top quality. Quality is actually a target and not everybody wants a target at the top. So not everybody wants to eat Wagyu beef. I don't want to eat Wagyu beef. I've never eaten Wagyu beef you in should, my life. You should. It's absolutely beautiful. I Yeah. Ne- I, ne- next time to come to Victoria, we'll, we, we'll, we will cook it here at Matt's house because um, there's too many snakes in my house. Um, but I would welcome that tremendously. But in terms of quality, qu- quality is nothing other than a target. So... Um, you know, if you have a, a consignment of, you know, 30,000 tonne of wheat at 10% protein, mm-hmm. that cargo needs to be commingled oh, at 10% yeah. protein. Yeah. If it's at, if, if average, you know, average of 10% protein through all the samples, what you don't want to be doing is you don't want to be making that cargo 11% protein. Oh, absolutely. You want because to, those you, people are only paying for 10%. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. And, and, that's, and that's, ar- that's arbitrage. But I guess we spoke a bit about how there's an objective measuring. And I guess what I'm saying is that in the future, a lot of our markets are going to be feed quality. 
uh, fair average quality, whatever you want to call it, FAQ, feed quality, grain. Going to Indonesia, Indonesia is going to be our biggest customer. It already is. Uh, but I'm just, what I'm thinking is, are we, a lot of the stuff I see is focusing on producing high quality grain. We want to produce the best quality grain in the world. But maybe we should be content at times and, and not be scared to actually say, well, actually, here's some really good high yielding feed quality grains. You know, it's, it, to an extent it happens in, in Victoria, but I'm just thinking on, on a national basis. So, sorry, what's the question? No, nah, that, that, that was a point. That was a that was a point. I don't order. know how to respond. I could. I mean, I, I could just, just 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 agree with me. No. Nah, <laughs> um, otherwise, I'll keep um, talking until you do. <laughs> just say, just say, yeah, yes, Andrew, good point. Yes. Um, one of one of the things. Let's one of the talk things about was, the fight for acres. <laughs> exactly. Um, what what so, so things what, I was what should, should farmers be thinking about? You know, sheep farmers. You're you're um, an industry leader of the sheep industry. You're you're one of the uh, what do they call it? What's that thing called? Illuminati. And, uh, the Illuminati. I, I wasn't actually going to say Illuminati. I was going to say uh, <laughs> that guy, that king, Albert, King Albert. The, I don't know. Alfred, Albert. The I don't know. King of the Knights of the Royal Table or whatever, yeah? Arthur. King Arthur. Arthur. <laughs> That's the one. It's like... Uh, well, anyway, I you're don't part... know Guinevere. Anyway. Anyway, so you're part of Arthur's circle of uh, the sheep industry. What what should farmers be considering? Should it be considering... Uh, like the merino flock is, is declining. People are obviously moving away from it by their own volition. Uh, should farmers be going back into wool or should they just be creating good quality sheep meat it's situation specific i'd be really daft to make a to to, to make a to, to give a definitive answer to that um but see, my, see liz, liz has taken instructions from chris lawson by giving us straight back answers and not <laughs> not not falling into our traps um but the the, the thing is i you know it, it's like any business you know do what you know, ha have objectives. You know, ha you know, have have objectives and 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 do what you do best. And you know, if you're if you happen to be in an area that is only good, you know, you just get rained upon day in day out throughout summer, and you just end up with um, sprouted grain, you know, discoloured grain, all that sort of thing. Well, yeah, you know try try to get high you know try try to get your high yields and 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 produce for the um produce for the feed market or even don't even worry about it just just cut hay um but you know it but explore explore all explore all the options but the the commodity system is by no means uh, redundant by any stretch of the imagination um but i i i really do sympathize with with farmers who who are trying to make a buck and i i imagine that they're in the most ethical way possible. Um, but I imagine that the reason why um, farmers are going for, you know, the, the really high quality, uh, the, the, the really top quality grains is because that's where the money is. Mm, not really. Not really? <laughs> well, the last couple of years, there's not been, a, other than this year, there's not been a major premium for high protein over lower quality grades. This year is different because there's a, a deficit of it. Uh, but you can't plan for years where it's like this, I guess. Uh, yeah, it's like, just... I suppose I'm just more thinking that, you know, at the end of the day, we produce so much 
that the commodity market is still going to be the biggest avenue. And I agree, getting the, getting the quality right, we've got to meet quality requirements. But that information has to flow down, not just for, you know, Jimmy's foodstuffs, what their customers want. We need an actual overriding. This is the quality we should be aiming for. This is the way you should be doing things to get to it. And whether that applies to lamb, mutton or... Yeah, and what and, and the best way to think about it, and how I te teach my students about this, is to is to think of um, you know the good old bell shaped curve that you learn in statistics one hundred and one. Everyone's aim, the aim should be to make sure that curve with your wheat, your pig meat, your eggs, your milk, whatever, on all of those quality parameters is as narrow as possible. So it doesn't matter what your average is, whether your average is 10 tonne, 5 tonne, you know, 3 fat score, it doesn't matter. As long as your average is, as long as your bell-shaped curve is nice and narrow around that mean, that is what your customer is going to thank you for because you are producing uh, you're producing a, a reliable product and a consistent product. Yeah. And when consumers like me open a can of beer, and want that can of beer to taste exactly the same as the previous can of beer. And if I don't, and if it doesn't, I reserve the right to kick off. I just, um, I just, I just want it as cheap as possible. But anyway, well, um, I'm not like you. No, but, but the, but, but I guess going back to your bell curve point of view, yeah, and Matt's a bit of a bell curve. Uh, but the reality is that there's a bit of a. At times, that bell curve also says that meeting the customer's quality requirements and aiming for too high, potentially, you've got different customers with different requirements. Like your, your requirement is obviously, you know, a nice, you know, I don't know, hazy pale ale, you know, from some hipster cafe or whatnot, whereas my requirements might be, you know, kind of emu export, sat in a park bench somewhere. So my, my requirements are probably slightly, slightly lower. But it still might be, it still comes down to profit. And it's not just, okay, meet the customer's requirement. Well, sometimes it's better not to meet the best customer's requirements. Sometimes it's better to meet the customer's requirement who doesn't have that many requirements. But don't forget the analogy. If it's going to be more profitable for me. Yeah, don't forget the analogy that you're drawing there with grains is that those people in the middle, so the storage and handling facilities of the world um, and the and the millers, they benefit and they profit from commingling. Mm -hmm, yeah. Um, and and that's and 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 being and what they want is they want a stack of grain that even if it is feed quality, they want to know the quality parameters in that of that stack so that that if that needs be, they can commingle and add and and add value. To that grain by putting it by commingling it with another grain, which is um, but, but that's precisely why sometimes quality works in both ways. Absolutely, and that you're commingling down high quality stuff. So what what I'm saying as well is that you can still make you can potentially make more profit with lower quality goods than high quality goods. It comes down to profit yes. at the end of the day. Yeah, so yeah, and, and the like thing just, is just because, just because the customer wants something doesn't mean customers should get that. Yeah, but also never forget that not everyone wants the top quality of anything. You know, look around, mm. look look around the the traffic. You know, not everyone's buying, not everyone's okay. driving Ferraris and Mercedes Benz. You know, most people 
apart, right. from, apart from Martin An and I. average vehicle. But, yeah, yeah, but we're not all um, leading, um, world-leading commodity analysts. Most of us are just normal people. But when you look at, let's say, for instance, use the analogy of caged eggs, yeah? Yep. Customer wants free-range eggs, apparently, yeah? But there's higher margins at times on caged eggs. Less spoilage, lower cost production. So unless there's a real push on it, you're still better producing caged eggs potentially. Mm-hmm. So that, I think I think the whole argument is quite interesting. They're not argument. The whole this, discussion um, around quality. This podcast has been a good analogy for it because there's been a lot of commoditized stuff coming out of uh, one of us, and um, and I've had a trying to trying to get in with a word a few times, and I just um, maybe because he's been having too much of his barley water, he's just got all verbose um, in his approach. But anyway, I was going to circle back. Liz, you were mentioning earlier on about um, where you're talking about how lucky we've been as a country in that agricultural space, right? And I just wondered, because um, some of that historical context, that that level of luckiness can also breed in an element of laziness into the sector. Um, and and obviously, you know, not, not, not painting a, a negative picture because there's a lot of great things that are happening across a whole lot of agricultural spaces that are innovative. But um, on balance, do you think there's still an element there in some pockets or areas or industries where there is still a bit of a laziness because we're still quite fortunate? Or do you think we are on, on balance more kind of progressive and cutting edge and innovative in, in, in the agricultural space from your perspective along the supply chain? Yeah, we're still um, okay. So first of all, um, I I need to to, to qualify that because um, I know that I'll get into trouble from some listeners by saying luck. Um, there was an enormous amount of um, um, strategic planning and graft that went in, so it wasn't only luck. Um, it was a lot of um, deep thought and a lot of people's lives, you know, were put into um, constructing those systems, and we have yielded the benefits from that. So um, the point about um, laziness and complacency, um, yeah, it's an outcome of a regulated system, um, and we see and and we and we see all the time when systems are deregulated and they and they start becoming competitive, that um, performance increases. The systems that we enjoyed after the war were, were pretty much regulated. Um, when Western Australia and well, the Australian Wheat Board, it was a, a it was a, a, a statutory monopoly, um, and and you know we saw the consequences um, of that and the fact that 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 accumulated, um, you know, up until what. 10, 15 years ago, um, and the complacency. But um, you know, even in the livestock industry, we still we we still see um, you know really quite negative consequences of a commodity system in the in the uh, form of very 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 poor practices of um, producers. You know, sending just sending rubbish um, into the system. Um, you know, I very often hear um, stories from sale yards where there are you know there are used lambing. Um, in sale yards, uh, you know, animals turning up with broken legs, that sort of thing, um, you know, um, cancerous, cancerous animals, this sort of thing, um, because the commodity system allows for this to happen um, and there are no consequences. Um, there are no consequences. Well, very jo- very broadly speaking, um, there are very, very limited consequences for poor practice. Um, mm. But with a with objective um, with a, with objective measures, um, I mean, I heard oh, 
a little while ago now that there were three lambs that went to the sale yards um, somewhere in um, in New South Wales, and um, they were a hundred kilos each. So they were less than a year. They were about a year old, and these these ewe lambs were a hundred kilos each. I mean, what what is an animal like that doing being in a system? That's mm. gross. Um, and how and 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 how somebody thought that it was um, appropriate to send animals in that condition into in, into the system is gross. But they but they knew that somebody somewhere would buy them and that somebody somewhere would do something with them. No worries at all. It was it would sort itself out. But with objective carcass measurement and really good um, quality parameters and payment for quality systems. Um, this is a really, really clever way of, of, of again, narrowing that bell-shaped curve and lopping off the um, the ends of the tail that we don't want. So, so, so does that make it like let's say for instance, let's say for instance you're uh, you're Jimmy the farmer again, and you are you've been plodding along, you've been doing well for the last twenty years, but you don't necessarily have the time or the capacity or the scale to get involved in all the subjective measurement and, and whatnot and, and make the changes, which which may be difficult changes. I, I, I don't know. They might be changing their grass or whatever. But like you might not be able to change make the changes, yeah? So so does this mean that it's going to be more difficult and it does it mean more consolidation again? And Possibly. That, like we've seen consolidation in grains because it's just it's a scale. If you've got a piece of equipment that can do a 1,000 hectares but you've got 500 well you buy another 500 hectares i don't know if we've seen the same with sheep consolidation in the same way other than the corporate sector but do we then start to see a lot of those smaller uh, sheep farmers you know don't have the scale to make objective measurement work and then do we see more consolidation in that area and therefore smaller communities quite possibly and is that I, the, is I can't. That... I can't say. I, I can't say any more than that. Um, we could. We could probably be on the blower for another two hours, um, mm. debating that point. Um, but yeah, quite possibly. Um, you probably make it's evolution a... and business evolution. Mm. You probably. You probably make a good point that um, that we have been chatting for a while. But there was one one final thing I wanted to uh, check you out on, given your West Australian there. Um, and it's, it's probably relevant to what you're saying there a little bit around, you mentioned a bit about the animal rights um, side of things when it comes to, you know, animals being presented at sale yard in poor condition or whatever. And I noted that um, just recently in WA, there's a new, is it a policy group or something that have been tasked with looking at the animal welfare aspects from the West Australian government? But that's, and, that's, um, that's a completely independent and objective policy group, is it not? Yes. With no access to ground. <laughs> Yeah, probably not. Not an axe in sight. Sorry, Matt, your question was? <laughs> well, there, there has been some suggestion from aspects of uh, social media that, that a handful of those in supposedly independently selected candidates have, have uh, got a, a, um, an agenda in terms of, um, you know, fairly, fairly vocal uh, historical animal rights type Matt, Matt's, just, Matt's just annoyed because you know he was thinking I'm on the sheep producers policy council I'm a livestock leader he was just thinking he would get the spot but he didn't so don't don't be sour grapes well there's you know it's, it's, it's it seems to be from someone on the eastern states that has an interest obviously in the live export sector it seems to be 
a very unbalanced um, council. Is that what are you, you've got any thoughts on that being on the ground there, Liz? Oh yeah, I, I agree entirely that it's inc- it's incredibly imbalanced. Um, but the I think there are a couple of points to make about that council. Um, I believe it's called the uh, AWAC AWAC. Yeah, committee. Um, so animal welfare something committee. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but yes, it is desperately imbalanced. Um, but I think what is really good. Um, and what's very, very, very positive is the um, the minister's um, ambition for widespread animal welfare um, improvements um, to this to this state and even to the country. Um, we mustn't forget that the the committee is not only about livestock, but it's about all animals in society. And we have a very rapidly changing attitude of. Um, of, of the general public's attitude towards animals in society. Um, and I think the best thing that any livestock pro- producing group can do would be to, to sit down and talk to, the, talk to the people on this committee and do whatever they can to start open um, and collaborative negotiations uh, and discussions rather than, um, rather than writing them off as, but, but uh, I guess, as, I guess, as I guess, people who don't know anything. I guess the issue you have is... If you're somebody, if you're dealing with a group who is completely set in their ways, it can feel like you're banging your head against a brick wall. And so, so I, I can understand why a state farmer organization would be thinking, geez, oh, these guys are, I, I actually don't know who they are. So I'm just talking in general terms. But if they are a bunch of people who are completely against animal agriculture or certain agendas, whatever, they're most likely not going to change their minds. You can only you you can't change the minds of a zealot. I'm not saying the zealots either. Before I get sued, but if they are zealots, which I'm not saying they are, you can't change the mind. You can change the mind of somebody in the middle ground, and I don't think you should actually be looking to change the mind. You should be looking to educate and inform them so they can make their own decisions. But there's a bit like the politics: the far left you can't change their mind, the far right you can't change their mind. You can only work around the middle. And so if that group, and again. I don't want to get sued by the Western Australian government, but what are you going to do? Extradite me. Um, but the reality is that the if it is a group that is heavily focused towards one side, I could I'm, I can understand why state farmer organisations would think what what's the point? Oh, absolutely, and I agree. I agree with them entirely. I really, I, 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 I agree that it's a very, very, very one-sided um, group of people. Um, there is very, very, very little diversity um, other than gender diversity um, in there. But um, the, the, fact, the fact of the matter is that anybody who is in the care of livestock, their main attitude should be for best practice animal, best practice animal welfare. End of story. Um, but and... I, guess, I guess the thing is, if that best practice is best practice is here and scientifically proven that this is good for the animal, like intensive pig farming is an example. Intensive chicken farm is actually good for the welfare of the animal. Correct. But people in that group may say, "Well, you shouldn't have them indoors. It should be they should be roaming the plains of Australia and playing with." balls or whatever yeah, and exposed to predation and, and, you know, and, and getting, uncontrolled disease exposure and, and, and yeah. eaten by wolves and whatever else uh 
run over by cars and things. But the reality is that isn't good welfare from, from a scientific point of view, yeah? But that doesn't matter if the philosophy is one of we shouldn't have intensive agriculture or we should have, you know, everything, every sheep should be under shade. You know, or, you know, you, which is interesting because you can't have your pigs in the shed, but you must have your sheep covered in shade, which kind of defeats well, the purpose. Yeah, pigs don't do very well out in the sun at all. No. Mm. A, bit, a bit like me. They're uh, <laughs> pink, pink skinned and become red pretty quickly. So, so yeah, like I agree. Like, I think it's you've got to try and work with them, but I can understand how that would be an uphill struggle. Oh, and, and, and it's going to be. Um, with, without question, um, and, and I, again, I reiterate, I agree, it's an incredibly one-sided um, committee. Um, it is what it is. And I think that state or, or any farming organisations um, would be best to go in with a collaborative, uh, reasonable frame of mind and listen to what they have to say, um, as opposed to all guns, guns blazing, because that's not going to help anybody. Um, it's just going to make, um, you know, people who, who are, we're making the assumption um, find our livestock production systems, um, they hold them in disdain. Well, it's going to make them, it's going to make things even worse. So mm. let's not make assumptions about who these people are and what their values are. Let's listen to what they have to say. Um, let's acknowledge that they are a part, they are now a part of our industry and um, yeah, see if, see if we can talk um, rather than fight in the first instance. Find a common ground. Oh yeah. A, you guys are a, full of these great expressions that really like hit the heart. That's, um, that's, that's, that's because a, we, we used to do a lot of traveling. We used to pick up self-help books from WH Smiths all the time. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Anything you buy in an airport. Fantastic. Quality. Quality. High quality. The, that's, um, that's what we're aiming for, not commodity information. That's um, that's as good as any, though. That's very precise uh, and good advice from Liz about how they should approach um, dealing with this new committee in WA. I think we uh, we may be getting time to towards the end. I was wondering, Andrew, are we going to are we going to do another uh, archipelago outro, or are we, <laughs> we going to switch to the traditional? Uh, Egg watches uh... acapello. I think you you, you start. <laughs> oh well, and um, <laughs> I can't believe we're we're not going to use the normal music. But I guess oh, we're I'll still going to use the normal music. But we'll, uh, we'll and we're going to sing it into it as a lead into as a, as a lead into the normal music. Why can't you well, switch to Sorry, Miss Jackson? Because well, they've got to pay for that. <laughs> oh, that's that's why we have to sing it. Yeah. <laughs> and there's no <laughs> rights. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I'll sign off here. It's been fantastic, uh, Liz, having you on. You're obviously, a, a wealth of knowledge across a whole range of areas. So we probably should have you on more frequently to talk supply chains when there's issues on. Um, there's probably, as you said before, Liz, there's probably another few hours we could have gone on. But um, And I enjoyed spending an hour and a quarter, which was roughly an hour and a quarter, not talking about Ukraine. There you go. Which yes, about that. indeed. Or, yeah, or I mean, didn't, didn't really talk about COVID. So... There, we go. there you go. Next time. Next time. But thanks for coming on and uh, I'll see you when you've got nothing on. Ciao for thanks now. Thanks for the opportunity, you two crazy kids. Um, we'll catch up soon, eh? Well, I'm do. sorry, Miss Jackson. <laughs> I am for real. Are you going to sing or not, Andrew? No, I was just going to leave you to sing. <laughs> <laughs>